Hey, hi, hello. Welcome to episode 18 of Trail Society brought to you by Free Trail, our good friends over at Free Trail. I'm Corinne Malcolm. I'm Keely Henninger. And I'm Hillary Allen. Yay, we're all back together. Hillary's in her <laughs> van. Um, everyone will have missed Hillary. We'll get lots of DMs. We've gotten lots of DMs. Hillary is back. Hillary mm-hmm. was busy when we were recording last time because she was doing some cool stuff up in Washington. She was hanging out um, on the road, meeting her Brooks teammates, being up at HQ in Seattle, um, running around in the Chuck Nuts. Um, <laughs> how was that experience? That's so cool. Yeah. And actually, uh, Corinne, I think you already know this, but I, as soon as I arrived into Bellingham after visiting Brooks, um, our coach, Adam St. Pierre texts both of us is like, I'm in Bellingham. And I'm like, no way. So I got to like steal a hug, uh, from the one and only Adam St. Pierre as he made his way up to Canada to ski race. Um, but yeah, I had a, a great time. I think, um, it's so exciting joining a new team, but it's another thing to kind of put faces to names. And I had the chance to do that because I'm racing in a couple weeks and it was kind of in the proximity by us standards. So made my way up to Brooks HQ and got to meet everyone behind the, the shoes and all the, the big brands. So it was, it was really cool. Got to meet some different teammates and cheer some people on at Chuck and Nut. Um, so that was cool. <laughs> I'm a little jealous that you're now teammates with Garrett Heath. I think that's really cool. I'm a big Garrett, big Garrett I got Heath to meet, Midwestern. I got to meet Garrett. Yeah. And oh man, he's the best. He's so talented. It's like, all I have to say is watch out trail world. Once he figures it out, it's going to be awesome. It'd be, it'd be cool. He also looks like he could build you a house. Like I'm always just, so. there's, there's good appeal. I might have a not so secret crush on Garrett Heath. Um, Chris Monko said that we'd have to fight over him. So um, I might let Chris oh, Monko get in line, Garrett. guys. He's my teammate. I've got the closest proximity. <laughs> um, I hope he doesn't listen to this because that'd be weird. I just someone, met him like two days someone's ago. Someone's <laughs> going to tell him this is going to be great. Garrett Heath, your world <laughs> has just been rocked. Um, speaking on team sponsorship news, Keely, you're officially part of a new new footwear team, which is really, really exciting. And uh, your Instagram has been really cool. I mean, your Instagram is always really cool, but it's been really cool recently um, kind of following along with a campaign that just launched. And I'm wondering if you could tell, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So I'm actually signed on with ultra for shoes and apparel. So, <gasps> That's so apparel is to come as a teaser. Uh, there it's obviously in the works right now, but, uh, yeah, me and Frank O'Hara, who's a really sp- speedy marathoner are the first two athletes doing both footwear and apparel. So we're going to help design some of their new apparel. So that's exciting. That's so um, exciting. But yeah, one of the biggest reasons I signed with them was because they made me feel so valued as a person. Um, And it was awesome that the two days after they announced my signing with their brand, they announced a new campaign for International Women's Day, um, teaming up with Kara Gaucher and all of the women um, on the team for a lot of conversation and dialogue around body image um, and women's running and how we've always been told we kind of have to look a certain way. And how that's kind of like 
created a culture of poor eating and poor training and really unrealistic expectations for how we should look. And we just kind of want to start this change around how people think they should look in relation to how they perform. And obviously with what we talk about on this podcast, that was right up my alley. So it was really cool that that was the first campaign they told me about. And it just happened to be the same week that I signed. And so I'm really excited for what's going on with them and what we're going to be doing in the future and really grateful for the support we're going forward. It's so cool. Yeah. I like the idea of like, I, I look like a runner. You, like this is what, like, this is what a runner looks like. And it's like everyone, we all like you're, it's like, it's like the whole idea of like a bathing suit body or whatever it is, a bikini body. It's like, if you have a body and you wear a bikini, you've got a bikini body. It's like, if you're a person and you run, you're a runner. Um, so I think that messaging is, is really important for us all to, to absorb. So that was really, really cool to see. Uh-huh. And our favorite girl, Caroline Gleich is part of the ultra team as well. And she obviously like took part in the ultra campaign as well. And we always love her messaging around body image and all that. And so really cool to join such a cool stellar group of women. If you hear any loud thumping, it's my dog trying to claw her way through the glass door, which is not working very well. So we'll see. I might have to let her in. But um, <laughs> for those of you not, not, not listening to this, watching this, yeah, there's a small creature trying to break into my apartment. Um, okay. Some we it's a light it's a light news week. Um, but one thing I thought was really cool is that the NCAA tournament is going on for basketball right now, and you all probably remember the drama last year where they like images came out of like the men's like weightlifting setup versus the women's weightlifting setup. Like the men had like full on like strength and conditioning room, Olympic lifting setup, and the women had like a couple kettlebells or something insane. Like it was like the disparity between how the male athletes were treated versus the female athletes were treated at the same tournament like at the same tournament. And, you know, I'm using air quotes because it's like they weren't treating them like they were. Um, I found a really, I follow On Her Turf. If you're looking for like women's general sports news media type stuff, On Her Turf that NBC puts out has been really, really good throughout both Olympic games, throughout kind of the collegiate season. Um, And they released an article um, basically kind of highlighting the fact that there were, of of the coaches in the NCAA tournament for women, there were 12 black female coaches present, which is twice as many, um, that were at last year's tournament. And then the article talks about how there's a bunch of openings coming up in the, like the big, I think it's called like the, uh, Keely will correct me. Cause I'm not a college basketball person, like the, the power five, like so there's some, there's some coach coach openings coming up in those programs. And they're really excited to get more women and more women of color into those coaching positions. And there was a really great, um, quote in the article, that said, you used to see coaches that don't look like us get a job, lose a job, and then get hired again. It's like their birthright. But now you get a sense that things are changing. And I love that. And that, that that's speaking to the idea that like predominantly white male coaches were getting fired and getting picked back up again. And these opportunities weren't going to other people. So to see 12 Black women leading these teams at the NCAA tournament, I think is just really, really cool. Yeah. And I'd say there's also been a lot of new additions to like the round table discussions that happen after the game. So I was watching a lot of it at the beach this weekend because um, my boyfriend's grandparents have cable still, <laughs> which is like unheard of these days, but we were stoked because we got to watch some of the tournament and uh, the Candace Parker is now part of the round table. And so she was killing it with a bunch of other legends 
And they, they not only in like incorporated her into the discussion really well, it, it felt really fluid, but they, they also really respected her prowess as an athlete and would ask her really targeted questions around being like, locked down in the middle of the game and what would you do to overcome that? Or if you started off the first quarter or the first, first half having a bad game, what would you look to do the second half to try to get yourself out of that mindset when, when they were watching other people in the league have those kind of games. And so that was really cool to hear her input there. Um, and then there yeah, was like actually not, not fluffy, like not fluffy comments yeah, or questions, no. which is great. They were treating her super seriously, which was awesome. And then just the the color commentary of the game, so not video, but 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 voice. There was also some women mixed in there as well, which is pretty rare for for men's basketball. Um, but one of the coolest things that I noticed was the amount of ads that were coming on um, intermixed into the commercials. So obviously, you had your stereotypical like insurance commercials and. Coca-Cola commercials and all the crazy ones, but there was actually one that was really cool by Buick that, that came out with a lot of stats on the screen and really, really like prominent text talking about how many women, how many athletes are women. So saying how women make up over 40% of athletes. However, they would show a sports highlight from a game that nobody's heard of because they're like, you probably never saw this game, but this was one of the best buzzer beater shots in history. This was one of the best penalty kicks in history, you know, like calling out all these really monumental sports moments, but highlighting the fact that probably nobody's heard of it. And because only 10% of media coverage is about females. And so there were a lot of brands kind of doing things like that. And there was a lot of ads coming in to remind people about the women's NCAA tournament, which I think was really promising. And so kudos to the NCAA tournament this year. Like they are definitely trying. trying. So it's a baby step in the right direction. Yeah, that's, that's huge. This is where the sports bra, the sports bra bar in, <laughs> yeah. uh, in Portland is going to be so huge. Cause she, they're, they're right. Like 40% of athletes are women, but 10% of the the games that you're going to see on TV or the, the athletic events you're going to see on TV are going to be the women's event. And so it's, uh, you know, I've had people joke about, you know, Oh, it's the exhibition event type of thing. And it's <laughs> like, that's, and one, you know, it's kind of, it's easy to be like, oh, that's kind of funny because it feels like that sometimes like we're treated like that sometimes, but to be like, to have money behind these ads and going into these tournaments and events and races where they, they actually show that they care about the women's field is, I think is, is such a, powerful, right. It's the minimum step forward. So I think that's, that's good. Yeah. I got chills when you were talking about that, that commercial though, which is a weird, a weird time to get chills. I'm going to find it and I'll send it to you guys as well as I'll link to it in the show notes, because I, I do think it's a really cool push by, by Buick. And I think actually Buick was one of the private investors that um, invested in the WBA. That's awesome. That's, that's yeah. so cool. We mentioned that a couple pop podcast episodes ago about, um, kind of a, an interesting way that the WNBA is going to try to fund fund player funding in the league in general moving forward. So very, very cool. All right, guys. And now we have something a little special for you. Keely and I are going to walk you through our races at Gorge 100K and 50K that happened this past weekend. So, hey, Keely. Um, so we were both in the same city this this weekend. There was kind of a thing going on. Um, <laughs> uh, well, actually, I mean, Dylan, he was um, uh, hosted the Gorge 100K, 50K run free trail and daybreak racing extravaganza event uh, the first time in a couple of years and, you know, outside of your hometown in Portland. 
So yeah. yeah, we both, we both got to race and, uh, it's kind of a fun little thing where you get to kind of interview each other about, about the weekend and how, how it went. Um, I don't know who should start because we both had some pretty, uh, <laughs> like opposite days, but, um, yeah, I mean, I guess the, the hundred K was first, but, um, I thought it was, it was pretty special actually. I mean, to, to be, to be there in the gorge of a place that, you know, had, hadn't been able to have a race for a couple of years because of a fire. And then obviously due to the pandemic. So it was pretty special to be reunited with the trail community. I know that that's one of the main reasons I wanted to go aside from trying to run a really long, a long ways. <laughs> Oh yeah. Me too. I think that was by far the best part of the whole race was just the amount of people from Portland and the surrounding areas that came out and how much like love you felt on the trail. Whenever right. you went through an aid station, there were so many people. It just felt like a reunion of all sorts. And yeah, I mean, I normally am not the biggest fan. Actually, that's a lie. I love out and back races because you get to see everyone. And it was no different for this one with the two out and backs because you got to see just twice as many people and you got to feel like their energy towards the end of the race, which was so cool. But yeah, yeah, um, it was awesome to see how well the trail maintenance crews have been refurbishing or, you know, re, re reinvigorating those trails because mm -hmm. they were awesome. And we got to run a lot of them, even though that the gorge was pretty well, like destroyed from those fires. So, yeah, I was impressed to see that. And just to know, you know, coming from a more arid climate with not as much water and just really understand, seeing how much movement there had been just in, you know, the week and a half that I was there, it was really impressive to see what the what the trail workers had done to, to help us run there. So totally. Yeah. And you got to come out a little earlier. So you were spending like a week in the Pacific Northwest in your awesome van, getting to preview some of the course before your hundred K. Yeah. So walk us through like that whole week. And then how was the hundred K and like, well, how are you feeling now? <laughs> Give us the yeah. Lowdown. yeah. So really, really, uh, you know, long, long race. Um, for this early in the season, at least for me personally. But um, so, yeah, I, I kind of made my way out um, to the Pacific Northwest first to visit uh, the Brooks headquarters. Um, so kind of why I was gone on the last episode um, for you guys' awesome interview. And uh, yeah, so good doing that. And then I decided to stay around and explore some new trails that I'd never gone on before. And it was a perfect opportunity to kind of take a peek at the, at the gorge, um, trail system there. So I got to kind of explore on course and a little bit out of uh, off the course. It's making me hungry to come back there. Cause there's some really cool running out, out there in the gorge. I got to ride my bike a bunch. Um, so yeah, that was cool too. Um, but yeah, that was kind of just the whole, just to kind of take the training on the road and explore a new place. Um, the whole purpose for me of doing the gorge 100 K was to have a long race, but a runnable one. It's different than the, the races that I typically do. So it's a definitely one out of my comfort zone. And, um, yeah, I would say waking up on race day morning starts at, you know, 5.00 AM. It was nice and rainy. <laughs> I'm really glad I started with my jacket, but, uh, I kind of, I, I felt kind of flat. Um, which is to be expected. I think on, you know, the last one I said, this is a training race, but you know, that's harder to do than, than, than you would expect. Right. Um, you know, some days you have like a training race and you still feel pretty strong, but this race, I was kind of out of it from the very beginning. Um, so mile 20, I remember seeing Dylan on the course and just being like, oh man, <laughs> and, uh, you know, shedding a couple of tears. And, um, thankfully though, like you mentioned, there was some, such good community, local runners kind of coming out, even though they weren't racing, you were there, Keely, you were supporting one, a runner, um, 
Ellie Pell, um, you know, for her, she was running the hundred K. So it was really cool to see, um, so many people supporting other runners out there, even though you had a race the next day. Um, and so it kind of, I gave it, you know, basically the race was one of those that you have to adjust expectations early on and then try to figure out a way, a way to finish it. And, um, you know, constantly asking that question of like, it's really easy to pull the plug. Um, but you know, there's, there's other reasons why, why we run and it's not just for, for performance sake. And I thought it was important for me to, to finish it, even though I didn't feel the best, I didn't feel like I was injuring myself. So decided to keep going. It's the first time that I actually, two things that happened. The first time that I've actually called my coach during a race, <laughs> actually three things, the first three things that happened. First time I called my coach during a race. First time I stopped to actually pick up a newt that I saw and put it off the trail in a race. So this is, this is a golden rule of mine that I normally don't do that. I normally run past them if I'm racing. I only stop if I'm on a training run, but this one, you know, whatever, we make exceptions. And then the third one uh, we won't mention because it's just a little bit too real, but uh, it's a challenging day. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like I was talking to you afterwards and it sounded like it was just such a good day to test your, your mental fortitude kind of, and, and just mm-hmm. remember that you can do really hard things. Cause sometimes, yeah, the race isn't the results, not sexy on paper, but some of those races give us the best like mindset going forward to remind ourselves, like how, do- how dark we can go and how far we can dig if we have to. Yeah. And I think that exactly that's, I think that's the reason. And, you know, honestly, it's like deep down, I knew um, that if I were to just quit that, I think I would have, I, I knew that I would have been disappointed mm-hmm. and there wasn't anything, there wasn't anything wrong. Like, sure. I felt like tight and like crappy, like right far, far ways, but you know, it's like, that's kind of what it was is a training opportunity. And I knew that I would have been disappointed in myself if I decided to quit. So I just found a way to keep going. And I think I told you this maybe the day after, but I nailed my nutrition. So I was like, what other time can you get an opportunity to practice like running for that long? And like, I was able to eat, you know, two to 300 Mm -hmm. calories every hour. It's great. That's amazing. And I think that's something that's really important for us to emphasize. And I think it'll be a big theme of our chat about this race is that even if your race is starting to go South, actually probably even more importantly, if your race is starting to go South, it's even more important to fuel correctly Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. there's no reason to make your suffer fest even more of a suffer fest because you are stopping on the fueling as well so I'm really proud of you for nailing that because that's (laughs) awesome and your recovery is going to be improved Mm -hmm. and it like kept you going and made you be able to like persevere even better than you did so yeah pretty cool and it's so funny actually I remember like sitting down in a chair which I don't like to do in ultras but I did and I um I was literally like, I was on the phone with my coach. I was like, should I keep going? And I'm, as I'm doing this, I'm eating a gel. So it's like, I already knew I was like, can I keep going? <laughs> uh, but yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. And yeah. I think it's really timely too, as we were just talking about in the, in this episode, actually, um, about expectations going into a race and how a lot of people can just kind of assume like, Oh, well, Hillary Allen's coming to the gorge. So she's therefore going to win, or she's therefore going to do with these run with these expectations. But Mm -hmm. the like, the cool thing about ultras is like, we all have different goals all the time. And so we should probably stop assuming because I say you had one of your better learning moments in your career, and it might not look as good on paper as people assumed that you would have wanted. But like, again, Mm -hmm. people shouldn't assume for you. 
I, I know. And that's actually hard. I think going to, to races, not just for elites, but for anyone, right. Of kind of like this pressure of like expectation and what other, what others think. And like, you know, it's, it's, it's actually, it's, it's pretty hard to win. Right. I mean, I know like you had a very different race, but you had a, a, like an excellent race and, you know, but it's still, it's so hard to put that together. Right. Like it's so hard to put together like a, a win or even, you know, just a, an ultra distance race. And so I think, you know, it's really easy to kind of make assumptions of like, oh, okay, like X, this person's here. Like, you know, let's, 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 they're, they're obviously going to do this, but like you said, there's different goals going into it. And I knew, you know, I wasn't tapered. So I knew that if I had a good day, maybe I could go for like a top five, but like, you know, I was just trying to kind of hang in there. And then once I figured out the like, oh, maybe this isn't happening. I was literally in my mind. Okay. Like adjusting goals. I mean, I say this to, to the athletes that I coach, but also to myself as like having an ABC, you know, through, Z goal if you need to out there and kind of going through the list. <laughs> Double it up to AA goal as well. BB mm-hmm. goal. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, but yeah, I mean, so like, but then I kind of like turning it on you too. So so you we talked about this a little bit kind of before on our we had the chance to do a shakeout run before before the race. And you know, I was kind of asking you about your goals, because your approach to, you know, preparing for your A race this season is a bit different. And, you know, we're both using races and, you know, in a, in a different way to prepare for our A goal race. And so kind of what were your goals going into, going into the Gorge 50K? Cause you did the 50K, um, mm-hmm. this, this past weekend. Yeah. And obviously different goals than you, because I was not running twice the distance. <laughs> That is not for me. Um, but yeah, I'd say I had two major goals for this race. The first one being nutrition. Um, so it was to basically fuel 300 or more calories per hour or 60 grams of carbohydrates an hour, like without an excuse. So it was not like, Oh, I don't feel like eating. If I had that thought at all, it was just persevere through it. My goal is to fuel. Um, and then the second goal was kind of instilled into me from my coach and it was to race patiently. Um, and not try to, you know, just gun it or run, push myself really hard from the start. It was to run with other women and to just get into that racing environment and to stay really calm in that really high energy racing environment. And then to slowly just to pick it up through halfway, but to never like totally gas yourself because this is again, not my a race, but to be Mm -hmm. very strategic with it and to still get those like that adrenaline flowing of feeling like you're in a racing environment. Right. So yeah, I got to run like 13 miles with Taylor Nolan. I got to run a ton of miles with a bunch of guys in the front as well. Um, and then I got to run, you know, a lot of miles by myself, but they didn't feel that way because you got to see a lot of people at those turnarounds and every every crew spot, you got to see so many people, but yeah, I definitely stayed true to, to kind of staying within a realm and not pushing too far out of that just to Mm -hmm. make sure that I recover really quickly from it and, and really nailed that nutrition and surprise when I did nail the nutrition, I didn't feel crappy, you know? (laughs) (laughs) No, and I loved your post afterwards. And I think that's so impressive. And also like, you know, to, to, you have to train that to like, to get Mm -hmm. 300 calories an hour, that is something that you train. And even to get two to 300 calories an hour for, you know, I was out there 11 and a half hours, like Mm -hmm. 
that takes, and my stomach didn't start to turn. So that, that takes practice, right? That's not something that we can just be like, oh, we're just going to decide to do this on race day. It's something totally. that we have to practice in training. So mm-hmm. no, I think, I think you nailed it. I loved it at the, one of the eight stations I saw you at, you're like, gels, gels, where are they? You're like, I need more. <laughs> yeah. My crew was like, well, we already gave you all of them. <laughs> you're like you ate them all, Keely. <laughs> like, well, I want more. <laughs> We found some for you though. Yeah, it was then, good. <laughs> uh, running into the final stretch, I think I had had 12 at this point. So I had reached my like goal, right? Or 13, maybe either way. I took a bonus one with, with like a mile and a half to go just because I was like, you know, I'm thinking about fueling. I might as well start my recovery while I'm running like <laughs> mine as well. And I know that's like kind of a silly thing, but I don't think you're ever going to be upset with with fueling a little bit more, even if it feels like kind of silly to fuel with only a mile and a half to go, like mm-hmm. you're going to use that energy. Your muscles are going to start repairing quicker with that mm-hmm. extra sugar. So yeah, that was kind of my goal because my biggest thing I did wrong with Western States last year was fueling. So the goal this year is to really just start to nail that, which, you know, heck yeah. Step one accomplished. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's yeah. so cool. But like the really cool thing too, is about, I think the racing mentality and like really putting yourself in that environment, because I like in ultras, we end up running alone. And I think we're very comfortable running alone. Like our long runs, if we're not necessarily doing that, if our schedules don't vibe with people, so we can just do it alone, but it can be a little bit anxiety provoking to like run with another woman. Like, Mm -hmm. or just not like another woman, but your competition, you know, if Mm -hmm. like, then you find yourself like one stepping each other or like, it's, it's, I think that's really good, um, practice to be able to run with other people and not be annoyed by it and not let it also dictate your race strategy. Mm -hmm. Um, and just kind of stay true to, you know, letting someone go and being like, okay, well, this isn't my time to push or, you know, you setting the pace if you know it is your time. So Mm -hmm. yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, exactly. And then it's like, even it makes it even harder when you do get into one of those races to, to follow your own race plan. Right. Because if you get caught up with those other people, you might find yourself running way too fast for what you should be doing or taking a climb way too fast. And that might really burn you in the long run. So it's like, yeah, being in that environment, but staying calm and still running something that's really true to you Mm -hmm. is just really important. Um, so yeah, it was a really cool event. It was awesome. Hmm. I mean, the ladies were hammering in the 50 K. Like I definitely yeah, was, were. I was not trying to, I was not jogging. I was trying to <laughs> keep my lead. Like they were charging. So yeah. like, it was not like a, it's not, I'm not trying to downplay the race. Like they were flying. So I was definitely still pushing. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, you yeah. were pushing. It was great to see. It was really cool. Yeah. That was, I, it was so fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And I, I love that too, with the, um, with just the community, I think that's one thing that kept me going too, is like t- traditionally, I don't really like out and backs, but like, I was a little bit skeptical, but then it was actually really cool. As soon as I started the first out and back, I was like, Oh, this is awesome. Everyone is so nice. Like it's like giving me, <laughs> giving me energy back. So uh-huh. yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. And all of these people have been reaching out all day, wanting to ask us some specific questions about the yeah. race as well. So cool. Let's go into, we've kind of nailed fueling, um, but one more specific question around fueling is, do you prefer um, liquid calories or like gel calories or real food? And then why did you choose handhelds for this race versus a pack? Nice. Those are good questions. So uh, I can take, well, personally, I think for a longer race, I do like, um, 
I do like a mix of liquid calories and gels, something that, I mean, I was actually talking about this with Caitlin Gerben after the race is that I use a different, due to my sponsor, the feed, I can kind of mix and match my gels. So I actually like to use different combinations of gel brands um, and ones that are a bit thicker and ones that are a bit like more kind of less viscous. Um, and so it's easier to go down. But I think in longer races, it's important for me to have something that I can chew because that's kind of where you first start digestion. And so it can kind of help kickstart mm -hmm. things. You don't get that kind of gut rot. Um, but I've been having a lot of success with this brand called Never Second and like a drink mix and gels that I really like. And then I use that on spring energy as well for, mm -hmm. for this race. So no solid food, actually. I felt that was, that was a great using that combination. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, for this one, I just use gels. But again, like, that's not something that I will use for 100 miles. So mm -hmm. it definitely mm -hmm. depends on the race. And so I definitely right. can, can nail nutrition for races like under seven hours with, with mostly just gels. But mm -hmm. when you get in those longer races, like, I don't know, just gels gets a little bit difficult. So yeah, definitely need to diversify those calories a little bit, but again, practice before you try them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, so Keely, what did, did you use a pack or did you use handhelds for the race? I use handhelds as well. So yeah. yeah, I, I typically, my rule of thumb is, is handhelds for mostly most races that are like 50 miles or under, especially if there are good crew spots. Right. Um, to be honest, this one, I think has pretty good space between crew or between aid stations. So I could see using a pack for this one. Um, so what I normally decide is like, okay, is, is the gap between aid stations going to be around an hour? Mm -hmm. or under an hour and a half. Um, and if that's the answer is yes, then I typically can get away with one handheld, um, especially if the temperatures are cooler, like they mm -hmm. were in the gorge. Um, but if the aid stations are really far apart, like they are in Europe or you're, you're traversing crazy mountain passes where the temperature changes really drastically, totally. um, then I definitely will carry a pack. Cause you're going to want to be prepared with that extra water. And then, yeah, in handhelds for me, I'm used to them cause I train with them more and I just feel like I can run a little bit more naturally. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, but that's just my opinion. Yeah. And I'm typically a pack runner, but, um, yeah, I kind of did the same analysis as you. And I decided to have, I had a belt and, um, and one and handheld that I could kind of stick in the belt or like carry in my hand. And it worked really well. Um, there was enough aid station and, and, and crew access that I was able to carry enough things with me and, and, and belts that I needed. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, okay. Another question from the audience. Um, so hmm. how do you gain, this is a good question for you, Hillary, cause I feel like you're a crusher here, but how do you gain confidence on technical terrain and get over the fear of falling, especially on terrain that is new to you? Ooh, that's a great question. <laughs> um, so something I like to do and, you know, <sighs> Honestly, I mean, so the gorge, it actually is quite technical in spots. Like there's lava rocks and it's kind of sharp rocks and you can't get your really fear flow. So, and it's kind of twisty turny. So I think it's good, um, you know, if it's new to you terrain, right? If you can kind of get out at least maybe the day before on one part of the course to kind of get a feel for it, right? I mean, I was able to kind of run on the course, um, but, you know, before that you can kind of ask questions. But I think really, really the for me, it's, it's just, you're a runner, like having that self-belief and that self-talk. And like, when you come to a technical spot on the trail, instead of like tensing up, right. I sometimes do this is like really trying to breathe through it and just like, you know, kind of visualize your way and like pick your way through it. And then it'll kind of, you'll build confidence as you go. Um, that's really like, if you don't have a chance to kind of get on the course, but instead of just like, you know, being like, 
you know, tense. And if you need to take a little extra time, that's okay. Like these races are kind of an opportunity, you know, to go far and to explore new, new boundaries. So I think, um, that's, that would be my best advice is like to not let that fear kind of get the best of you, but still go out and try anyways. And like, breathe through it because if you get tense that can that is not fun (laughs) yeah and I think just one other idea that I've had recently is to to kind of practice on your regular runs on trails you're used to Mm -hmm. so maybe even if they're not super technical treat them like they're more technical and take shorter steps and try to be Mm -hmm. like lighter on your feet because I think the biggest falls and the biggest ankle sprains and the biggest white up wipeouts happen when you're you're running really cautiously and you're landing on your feet really long because you're giving yourself a lot longer time to slide or, or twist your mm-hmm. ankle so if you get better at running down hills on lighter feet and quicker steps then if you can like practice that on trails you're co- you're confident on and then slowly practice that on more technical trails and then becomes a little bit of second nature then when you get to a trail you're not used to you'll still at least embrace that form and you'll be able to run over that trail like a little bit more freely instead of instead of bracing to to Hillary's point but yeah mm-hmm. sometimes you just have to go slower and that's okay cuz the lava rock hurts i tapped my <laughs> knee on it very very briefly and it basically bled down my entire leg for the whole race and people thought i was pretty cool <laughs> It did. It looked pretty badass. Yeah. (laughs) It's sharp. You should see the cut though. It's like so tiny. Teeny. (laughs) Yeah. That actually happened to me when I was in, when I was in Flagstaff, it's very, or sorry, in, in, in Tucson and it's very sharp rock there. Like had a little gash and was just like bleeding so much. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. (laughs) All right. And then I think just so, so we're not taking up everyone's time in their earbuds. Um, we'll do one more question. It kind of combines a couple of them, but how do you go about establishing a race strategy and how do you know how fast you should run certain race distances in relation to how you train? Ooh, a tough one, right? There's a lot of a... questions around pacing and, and the race, race goals and race prep. So mm-hmm. we might have to do another episode. <laughs> Actually, I think this would be a really, really good one. Right. So like, cause I could get a basic idea for it. Um, you know, based off if you, if, if you are able to go on the course, but that might not be, you know, the most realistic. So how, how I get a feel for it is, you know, I can look up the race splits and times from years prior, um, you know, judge kind of like look at years past and performances and it kind of gets tricky if the course is a bit different from year to year, but you know, you can kind of get a gist for it and you can kind of get a gist of like, okay, this is the, if you're, if you're, this is a winning time versus this is like a top 10 time based on your goals. Um, you know, and if you're, you know, no certain runners or like, if this is kind of, if, if this feels kind of familiar to you, I mean, kind of like bin yourself in like the appropriate area. And there's generally someone in there that you can kind of match splits to, um, just to get a general goal. But then from there, I, I mean, I have a spreadsheet, so uh, my coach helps me make them. And so then we can, you know, kind of go through the A through B, um, goals. Um, but I think also, at least in my experience is like kind of taking, taking apart, of course you can't always judge technicality and like on tired legs, but you know, you can take the course section by section and kind of see if there's a trail at home that mimics the elevation gain um, and like kind of the elevation profile and see how that can, you know, match up in like a training run. Um, and that can kind of give you an idea for how much time it might take you. Um, and like how, how long that, that, that a certain course might, might take, um, sorry, a section might take, and you can kind of build out a race plan from there. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
What about you? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm thinking of it from like a 50 K perspective or like a little bit of a quote unquote shorter ultra, maybe similar to a marathon of distance where you're able to achieve a little bit of a faster pace than say Mm -hmm. like a hundred K. Um, and I guess how I dictate how fast I'll go out is if I'm doing training runs and I have a tempo type workout, um, maybe put in the middle of a long run, um, I'll go out around that similar tempo pace, maybe slightly slower than that, because it's something, you know, that you can hold for a really long time. And that if you keep the effort the same, that you're not going to go too far down into the well, cause you're not going to dip above that anaerobic threshold, right? You're going to stay a little bit below it. Mm-hmm. And so if you do do tempo work as part of your training, um, and you're running something that's going to be more in that marathon distance, you can aim for something just slightly slower than that in terms of effort, again, not pace, um, Mm -hmm. and kind of shoot for that as your goal. And again, that'll be easier to do when you're fueling properly and all that. And you'll obviously have to take into account the technicality of the race, because obviously with the gorge, even though you're running downhill, if you're running on slick, slick, um, rock by the by the waterfalls, you're not going to be running the same kind of pace you would on, on like a road downhill. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I'd say it's like trying to translate how you feel during certain runs to how you want to feel on race day. And so obviously you can kind of hold a higher pace or a a harder pace for those shorter ultras. And when you get to those longer ultras, you really want to like modulate that pace to a lower end. So you're not cooking yourself for too long. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I love that with, with the effort, right? So uh, I think that's perfect. Like the different perspective from the shorter versus the longer race, you know, the longer race, I wouldn't want to feel that almost like that tempo effort until like the last third. Um, so yeah, just kind of, you know, it's almost like, almost like a progression run, but it's just the cumulative fatigue that gets that effort up there for those Mm -hmm. longer guys. Yeah. But how's your recovery going? Yeah. You know, I would say great. Um, you know, just like a little bit muscle soreness is like kind of, I mean, like I didn't really go to the well, I just maybe went to the mental well. So my ego's repairing itself. (laughs) No, just kidding. But, um, yeah, muscularly it's like, like a little bit of sore feet and and ankles, but that's Mm -hmm. about it. So feeling pretty good. What's your go-to, what's your go-to recovery hack? Oh, um, stretching and compression socks. If you're traveling afterwards, Mm -hmm. um, and continuing to fuel because, um, your like fuel and like fuel and drink. So that, I mean, it does wonders and then sleep. I, you know, I have a van so I can just like pull over and sleep anytime I want. So it's great. I did that a couple of times today. <laughs> <laughs> Hillary's crushing the recovery game. Yeah. I, I echo everything that she said for recovery. Yeah. But yours yeah. is going good too. How did that extra, yeah. how did that extra gel treat you? Just kickstart you into recovery. Kicked it, kicked it off. Yep. <laughs> to be honest, I actually felt amazing yesterday and I definitely feel a little bit, a little sore today um, mm-hmm. from the, from the like pseudo fall. And just, mm-hmm. I think that the rocks, they get your feet a little tight. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So yeah, everyone who raced, congrats. You guys crushed it. Yeah. Um, and we're so stoked that we got to talk to you guys about the race and everyone who was out there. We love seeing you and all the free trail fam. We got to meet at the, the like after party. That was so fun. So yeah. thanks for coming out and we'll kind of shoot you back over to our regularly scheduled program. Thanks. Um, I think we're going to move right on into, uh, into our kind of the meat and potatoes of the show today. We were kind of spitballing some, some ideas, some things that we wanted to talk about. And 
I think we, we kind of landed on like common mistakes. Like we all make mistakes. We get tripped up. Um, we ourselves do it. We watch, we all, we all coach. So we watch our athletes do it. And with the training season or not even the training season, the racing season, like really getting underway, it's 2022. We're, we're racing. we got races on the calendar. I just raced. Um, we wanted to talk about, you know, I don't know more about than like how it just went. And so we're going to talk about, you know, building into, we're going to call them training races or building races. Um, and I guess I think we'll probably go on some tangents. I'm going to go on some tangents for sure, but I wanted to dive into that. So Keely, this kind of talks about what we talked about recently. Um, in, in our last episode about having a friend who had a race and it, it might not have gone, I don't know. So people would assume that it didn't go well, and that's not necessarily the case. And I think we talked about a little bit how like we feel pressure getting on the start line. Um, people are going to judge your performance. I know I had people reach out to me about way too cool. Like, was I happy with it? Was it what I wanted? And it's like, you don't know why I'm racing. Like, you don't know if it's my A race or my B race or a training race or, or what it might be. And so I'm wondering if either one of you have struggled with that idea of like, even, you know, using a race as a training race, because it's like, what, you know, pe- people are going to judge you based on how you do, which kind of sucks. I was just having this conversation inside my own head yesterday. <laughs> and I got to actually, uh, I got to go see Caitlin Gervin. Uh, she lives in Issaquah outside of Seattle. And we were kind of discussing it too. It's like, you know, she, she, her first race from injury was, you know, trans Grand Canaria, a mega race. Right. And, you know, she got eighth and of course she, she like finished it, but she was talking about, you know, it's like not up to my potential, but it was important to do it. And it was important for me to finish it. And, um, leading up into, you know, the gorge 100 K it's like, it's a scary thing. Like I was just talking to Adam too. I was like, Adam, you don't have me tapering. What the heck? I'm going to be super tired for this race. Like, he's like, well, that's the point Hilly. I'm like, what? (laughs) You know, it's It's a training race, Hilly. (laughs) Right. And so it's, it's so tough because I think, you know, and, and this just, this goes beyond like, you know, it's not just speaking as like three elites who, you know, if you're, our names are recognized in the sport and like you show up to start line and there's kind of expectation, right. Personally, but also from an outward standpoint, but I think that goes to anyone who's standing on the start line because, you know, it's like we, it's a, it's the race day. Like that's the day to measure up and what happens if it doesn't go perfectly. And I think for me, I mean, I always have this battle within my, my head. It's like exactly what you mentioned, Corinne. It's like, you don't know why I'm running it. It could be a training race. It could be just like a huge personal, you know, process, a big, you know, step into the unknown. It could be my super a race. Like that's so personal. And it's like, you know, that's what makes running awesome, but it's, it can be a little bit hard if it's like the, you know, race day is the day where everyone judges you, but it's really hard to not to, to, to separate those two things. So it's emotionally, it's emotionally hard to race and to use it, you know, quote unquote, as a training race. Um, so why, so why do we do it? I guess, like, do you guys like, I mean, it sounds like they're stressful. Do we like training races, building races? Like I personally, I use them every year. I have athletes use them like Keely, you've got gorge 50 K and gorge 50 K is not your a race that's leading up to the big dance at Western States. So, so why, like, why do a race like that? Why do you like having these building races in your, in your schedule? Yeah. I mean, I think I was actually having a little trouble being okay with my current race schedule while trucking up was going on because 
I mean, I absolutely adore Chuck and and I love running fast on that course. So as soon as you see the start list and how many girls are running it, you, you just want to be there. And I was talking to my, my boyfriend and he was kind of like, okay, but do you want to win Western States or do you want to go win Chuckanut or race Chuckanut? And I'd be like, ah, okay, this is not my plan. This is not my build, right? Like this is not the right time for my build race yet. And so to answer your question, when you look at a build race, it needs to fit into your plan for your A race, right? And so from when I started my training from my down season, it was not key for me to race Chuckanut. It was just not quite the right timing for me yet. And so I did not sign up and that is why I was not racing. And I couldn't let my mind get in the way of that. And so Gorge 50K is only a 50K in relation to Western States, but it will be just a really good test to race locally. So not have any stress of actually figuring out racing travel logistics, but figure out your nutrition plan early in the season and getting used to that fatigued leg feeling and running on fatigued legs um, in a race environment. And so that's kind of the goal with Gorge. And then I actually have Canyons as my second build race. Um, 50 K. So again, not a, not a super long race, but it's on the course of Western States. It's another opportunity to run one of the hardest parts of Western States. So it's like course familiarization, as well as again, dialing in that nutrition in a different environment in an environment that's going to be the same on, on the a race day. And so they have really good purposes. If you just keep reminding yourself that they have purpose and that that they, they don't have to be your absolute best finish. Yeah. So that's interesting. So you mentioned that it's good to kind of, you know, practice your nutrition. It's good to have some, like feel that fatigue in your legs. Hilly kind of mentioned that, like she's not taper, you know, no taper for Gorge hundred K. And so it's like, you're going to have fatigue in your legs. So what are you practicing for? So it's like, what, what are the other reasons why we want these build races in our calendar? Because we've already talked about how they're mentally really challenging. So what other positives do we have for getting on a race feeling untapered, not necessarily fully prepared, you know, what, what opportunity, other opportunities do build races present for people listening to this? Yeah, at least, I mean, personally, but also for the athletes that I coach, it's, you know, doing a self-supported, you know, 50 plus, uh, mile or hundred K effort is really hard. And I mean, you know, it navigationally, right. There's a lot of stoppage time. If you're trying to figure out a continuous, you know, like, uh, interesting, um, you know, longer endurance effort to, to run. Um, and it's logistically tough with bringing enough water, food, et cetera. And so I think these are really good opportunities to, in order to practice kind of having almost a self support, uh, like a supported long run, right. Obviously that's a, that's a race, but then the added benefit there is that, you know, there's the community environment surrounding you. So you kind of get a little, maybe a little extra kick in your step for those, you know, maybe brutal moments when from running on tired legs purposefully. Um, and so for me, it's just, you know, I don't have many opportunities to run that long um, on a, on a route that makes sense where I, A, know the course or B, have enough, you know, water stops or refuel stops along the way. Um, yeah, and it's a, catered, it's a catered long run. We love that. <laughs> I love that. That's my, my take on it. It's hard when you pin a bib on to, to make it a yeah. catered long run. Right. It's like, yeah. I like to tell athletes, like you can, we can do long training, training sessions. We, if you can't get to a race, if it doesn't work in your calendar, if you're not excited about it, like we can, we can do a lot of work with training. I was like, but if you want to practice things going wrong, 
pinning a number on your shirt is about the best way to do that because it turns out it's really hard to make things go wrong in your 50K training run. It's really easy to have things go wrong for whatever reason when you pin a number on. So I think that like that practice is just like, I love, I love that. I love pinning the number on and having aid stations and just like having to troubleshoot out there because things generally, I feel like anyway, don't go super wrong on training runs, but they do when the gun goes off. Yeah. And it's no different. It's not much different than a lot of road runners who train for marathons. You don't see people just training on their backyard roads and then going straight to one of the biggest marathons in the world. They're doing like 15 K half marathon, maybe a marathon before the big marathon. Like they're doing races to kind of get used to the racing environment to test their fitness. Cause it's obviously really good to have fitness checks along the way to make sure you're trending in a positive direction with your fitness. And so yeah, we don't need to necessarily look at trail running in a different way than traditional road running. Um, it's just the approach is a little bit different. And something else to add too, it's like, if we remember back, I forget which episode it was, we were talking about goal setting. I mean, I think having other races is really important because it's a way for us to not put so much pressure on ourselves for one race. Like we have a chance to practice it and then also practice that like self-love that no matter what happens, it'll be okay. And then the next race will be here. So I think it's also important in kind of that process of goal setting to have non a races. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, Corinne way too cool was not an a race for you. So what things did you go in as your goal for those races? And what did you come out with? Yeah. So I think I'm, I'm a big fan of just getting my shit rocked early in the season like going to races that I have no business going to that are generally way too fast for me um, in, in any given year. That's why I've run like Sonoma 50. It's why I've shown up to canyons. It's why I've shown up to way too cool twice now. Um, like I go in without an ego. I go in just to get a little beat up because I think I need it. I need to get beat up so that I'm ready to handle whatever like my actual race, my like my A race throws at me. And so for way too cool, this year is a little bit different because I haven't raced in two years. Like that's an insane, but it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not insane. Laddie, I just did that. You know, I chalked it not that long ago. Like you got to rip the bandaid off somewhere. My bandaid was way too cool because it was local, just like gorge for you all like, or not for Hilly. Hilly is not local, but for, for Keely, it is, it's, it's your backyard race basically. And so for me, like getting to go to a place that was just up the road, um, really low, low stakes, low pressure in that sense. Like it's hard to show up to a competitive race mentally and not like be like, Oh, are people going to care? But I push that down. I say no ego. Like you're here to get your shit kicked. And, but this year, because I haven't raced in a while and because I wasn't ready necessarily to run a 50 K like I hadn't done quite all the work I needed to do. Like it was good to go into it with this mental space of being like, I'm here to run a 50 K. I'm here to pin a bib on and go from point A to point B. I'm here to bust the cobwebs out. I'm here to deal with all the emotions that come up when you're, you know, out on a race course. Um, and got fortunate that I got to run with a friend the whole time. So it made it very, very chill. But, you know, I had to practice my nutrition. I had to ask a lot of my body that I haven't asked of it in a long time. So for me, the, the goal, like I had to go into the clear goal. What did I want out of this race? I wanted to run a 50K. I wanted to get, you know, check that box off because I've got bigger goals coming this season. And this was kind of like a little confidence boost that I could trust my body to do this thing again. And that, that for me was like, okay, I can go in with these clear intentions in mind. The goal was not to PR on the course. The goal was not to throw down a 50 K PR. Um, I had to go in with the right headset or the head headset headspace, um, to, uh, to accomplish the goal of like just getting the distance done for me. 
this, this time around, but it's so easy to go into these competitive, you know, using a competitive race as your, um, as your, uh, training race or your build race can be really, can be really challenging. And I definitely felt that going in and I had to squash the ego down and know that whatever was going to happen that day was going to happen. And I was just really happy that my body did do what I thought it could, like it could run 50 K again. And that was pretty exciting. Yeah. But that's really impressive that you could squash that ego coming back from an injury. Cause I feel like you'd want to just absolutely crush it because you've been patient for so long and coming back from this long tremulous injury. And so kudos to you because I did not do that. My first injury after my pelvis was broken, I took zero time off and just stress trained for three months on the bike for a month. And then two months on just stress running before, before CCC entered that race with like crazy unrealistic expectations. And then DNF'd at a marathon, at a marathon, because my body was like, what are you doing? Yeah. And I think those expectations are so important. Right. And like having someone to bounce those expectations off of is so, is so crucial. Because if any, like, right, like Keely, if you'd gone to someone and you like someone that you really, really trust and they, and they could say, Hey, like maybe we do this instead. Or like, Hey, like I believe in you. Like, I think, I think you're exceptional. I think you're going to, you're going to win CCC, but it's not this year. Like, let's, let's like, let's pivot. Let's like, you know, I think I joke with athletes that I don't need a coach to motivate me. I need a coach to tell me to sit down and chill out. And like, that's, it's important to know like that you've got that person in your corner to help you sometimes because we're emotional beings, right? Like we're all, where I was like laugh crying over the weekend at random stuff. Like we're all emotional beings. And so I think like having someone that can help have the bird's eye view, be it a partner, be it a training partner, be it um, a teammate or a coach, like having that person who can like speak to you rationally, I think is because you're not going to believe it yourself. Right. So it's a hard, it's a hard lesson to learn though, for sure. Sad, sad Panda. Um, so <laughs> Keely's running 50 K's to prep for Western States. I just ran a 50 K to prep for, um, Madeira Island ultra trail. That's coming up at the end of April. Hilly, you're running hundred K that's a long, it's a long training race for anyone. So I'm, you know, kind of, I think the question here is like, what's, what's the appropriate length for a build race? Does it matter? Like, is, is there too long? Is there an appropriate length race for, you know, you do a 50 K for a 50 mile, you do a 50 mile or hundred K for a hundred mile. Like what, is there one way to do it? Like, I'm just curious, like how you all think about that for yourselves personally, but then also for like the athletes that you work with. Right. And I think it's a good question because it was something that I was kind of like, I was working really hard to try to figure out a good like races. And I have three races this year. And, um, I was speaking with my coach because he's my sounding board and we chose, we chose the reason why we chose, um, Gorge 100 K was because two reasons in the early season, I think it's important to kind of put in some base miles to prep for summer miles. And for me, there's a, there's a distinction. I'm not putting in a ton of vert in the winter spring because there's a lot of snow on the trails. My ankles usually get very unhappy running in spikes and snow. So I tend to stick to runnable trails. And that's usually something that I'm, I'm not so practiced at, you know, I tend to go to the steep hiking things and I want to stay there because that's kind of my comfort zone. And yes, UTMB is my A race and it has a lot of that, but in order to, to put that on, um, to put those like mountain miles on, I wanted to kind of do a more runnable race. And so a hundred K race, like at this race is going to run totally different than say 
the 100K plus that Madeira is, right? It's going to be very different in the amount of hours. And so that was kind of one way that we thought about it. Yes, it is very long, but it's good to practice those runnable miles now so that when I kind of turn to more hiking and mountainous terrain, um, I'll be ready from like an hour standpoint. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's not always apples to apples. Sometimes you have to mix in a little oranges there for the comparison sake, but we chose that just for the two reasons of, um, it's a bit less hours, um, and to practice one of more of my kind of weaknesses, which is like the, the running, the, the runnable, uh, kind of course, which is intimidating in a different way for me. But, um, I think, uh, yeah, it's also, it's setting that ego aside too. Cause it's like, it's not only is it long and it's the earliest race I've ever had in a buildup, you know, it's also what, what do you want to work on? And that's something that I want to work on. And so it's important to kind of put those big, scary goals and, and no matter if someone's going to judge them or not, especially myself. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I've definitely used hundred K's as builds before. And for me, I don't think I was able to put my ego aside. So they were not more, they weren't really builds. They were more of just races, which doesn't really work. Um, and so for me by now, I just know myself well enough that I can't risk the negative impacts that racing 100 kilometers might have on me in relation to building for something like Western States for it to be worth it. And so mm -hmm. I will not race over 50 miles building for a big race because I don't think the the risk outweighs the reward. Um, but I do think there's a lot of merit to racing shorter stuff that you can actually recover from and make sure that you're bouncing back from, and you don't have that delayed long, long fatigue from those long, long races. Um, and I started a trend this way for athletes as well, because, but, but for a little bit of a different reason, um, we all know that a lot of athletes we work with, they aren't full-time runners, right? They're balancing families, they're balancing life, they're balancing work, all sorts of stuff. And so when they come with, to me with a, with an A race, the buildup is going to utilize a lot of shorter races or just self-supported training runs so that they're not overcooked because that a race is really long and it requires a lot of training. And when you're balancing a lot of things, you just can't risk to burn the candle at both ends for too long, or you're not going to make it to the race, um, very healthy. And so, yeah, I try to, to trend like lower so that they actually can be guaranteed to recover. I think that's super, super smart. I think my longest, my, I mean, 2018 is so interesting. So I ran Western States twice, 2018 and 2019, mm -hmm. 2018, my biggest week was only like 80 miles only. And I say that that's like a bad way to phrase it because that's still a lot of miles. Everyone's mileage is going to look different. Um, and that my biggest week happened to include canyons, 100 K. I had a super stressful job. I was juggling a couple jobs at the time. Like my training volume couldn't be as high as it might be otherwise, because I had high stress elsewhere. 2019 world's kind of my oyster. My job stuff is pretty, is pretty relaxed. I've got some travel opportunities. I put in like 130 mile week as a big week, but my longest race going into that Western States was, was a 60 K. So 40 miles. And that's just like, that just, just like kind of how the cookie crumbled a little bit. Like I didn't, that's the race that was available to me. I didn't want to travel again. Like that's just how it worked out. I was dealing with a little bit of a niggle, um, from getting in a bike accident commuting. Yeah. I got hit by another cyclist. Not great. Um, so it was like totally different seasons, but basically identical Western state states outcome. So it's like, there's no one way to do it. And I kind of loved only having that like 40 mile race. Like it's what my body could handle. I could recover well and still get in really good training. Um, so I don't think you have to do it, but I do notice in athletes that, and, and in ourselves too, that 
there are people that get confidence from their training and there are people who get confidence from their racing. And it doesn't have to be racing. It could be big efforts. You know, Dylan um, Bowman, our friend over at Free Trail, he like he likes to put in, it doesn't have to be a race, but it has to be a big effort. So he goes and does, you know, like the backbone FKT or something of that nature um, to get that big stimulus in. Um, but I think you can get that confidence from from just from your training. And I think that's a hard thing though to, to teach your athletes or to convey to other athletes is that you don't need that 50 mile. You don't need that hundred K as that confidence boost that you're going to be able to do the hundred mile. And so trying to like steer them towards actually believing in their training is something that I think like is not, is not easy, but it's something that I'm working on because you're right. Like you don't need, you don't have to do a hundred K to run a hundred mile. You don't have to do a 50 mile to run a hundred miles. So I think it's, I think that's important to reflect on though. Cause that's not, not, not everyone has the opportunity to do that stuff too. Cause turns out race entries are kind of expensive. Um, maybe you've got kids and a job, like getting time off from work to go do a race. Like that's hard. Or you live in a wintry place. So there are no early season races and you can't travel to California where we race every weekend. So I think it's, you know, the, all those factors are in place. And I think it's, it's important to convey that there's no one way to do it, but that we're kind of all cautioning towards like maybe less is more. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important too, because it's that, that conversation. And just because, you know, that's how I do it or you do it, Corinne or Keely, that's how you do it. You know, just because I do it that way, it doesn't mean I'm modeling my coaching style after what I'm doing. Right. It's an individual conversation mm -hmm. with every single athlete that you come across. And I think, you know, we learn from mistakes that we've done personally. So we know the feeling, right. That we'd want to like avoid in a different athlete. Um, but yeah, it's like periodization and knowing kind of what, what each person has at their own disposal. Um, yeah. And I think as you're in the sport longer and longer and you look at marathon running and the ideal training for marathons, and then kind of try to extrapolate that to hundred mile, you start to realize that there's no way to actually train that high of volume for a 100 mile race. That would be like putting in 500 miles a week. Right. And that's not obviously going to be conducive to running a successful hundred mile. And so <laughs> I think as you realize that you begin to kind of come to terms with the fact that you might not be hitting those extremely high volumes to run a hundred miles and, and maybe that's okay. And so then, yeah, working with yourself to figure out what works best with, with your life and your training to optimize your performance is, is really key. Yeah. I definitely take a quality, a quality over quantity approach. And I think that's, that's, that should be, I, you know, I, I, once again, you'll like talk to an athlete. They're like, okay, this is the job I have. This, these are like, these are the kids I have. Like, this is how much time I have to train. Can I do it? And I'm like, yeah, we're gonna get really creative and we're going to focus on quality over quantity. And I think that's important to remember that you can, you can do that. Um, but it's a real, it's a struggle. Sometimes the comparison game is real. Don't do it. You're not Jim Walmsley. It's okay. No, we're not, we're not Jim Walmsley either. We're, we're getting over it as well. Um, so we've kind of talked about like having a build race for an A race, but, and everyone's season looks different. I've had seasons where I've got a clear, distinct A race. They've got seasons where maybe I've got more than one A race. And although the three of us all kind of like a traditional off season where it's like, we don't race. And then we race in the summer type of thing. Um, this year, um, because I'm racing in April, and April is in a lot of ways an A race for me with, with it being Madeira at the end of April. And then I've got TDS in August as another A race. It's a long season if you're thinking about being on that entire time. And so I know that I'll need a mental reset after Madeira in order to get back into the mountains and do the training I want to do for, for TDS and, and stay fresh and not get burnt out. And so I'm wondering if I think 
neither, none of us really fall into this category of normally doing that, but how do you balance that um, either personally or with athletes again to, to divide up the season in a way, if you're going to have two A races or they're A races that are really spread out to not, to not get burnt with like an eight, eight or nine month long season. So I think, you know, like you just said, it's a huge, it's a long season. And personally, I know I periodize my year based on like, I'll do periods of more running. Maybe that's now leading up to gorge. And I've got some bike races that I want to do. So I know that during my, during my season, I'm going to have some pretty low mileage running weeks because I'm going to be, you know, doing something else. And that's because I really like it, but it helps me to stay hungry for the trails and like on two feet. Right. Um, so that's a way to periodize it. But I also think to not be afraid to just take a week completely off. I remember I, Adam prescribed this for me. It was like, I was feeling really burnt out and I, he's like, he'll just take a week off, like just do nothing, do some yoga stretching. It was like in July. And it actually, it helped a ton. And actually like the day one and day two was kind of like a struggle. Like I shouldn't do it. But then by like Sunday, I was like, this is awesome. And I felt so refreshed by the time I was able to, you know, to come back. So I think it's also, it goes down to just being aware, like knowing that feeling. I think we've all had this, of us feeling like it just unmotivated. Right. I think like if you, there's a time in training where that happens, where you kind of have to put in the miles, but if that persists, I think it's telling you something more. And so it's kind of really being in tune with that and communicating it to, you know, your coach, your significant other, your team, whoever that is, and then being able to kind of make adjustments according to that. Yeah. I have an athlete actually that this is a perfect analogy for. So they wanted to do a race at the end of September. And so planning out their season, they were a little bit eager to start running really early on this year. Right. And so my main goal was to make them come to terms with the fact that maybe we wouldn't be running a ton this winter because we didn't need to do that long of a build. And I wanted them to be really hungry come mountain season and really hungry to train for that race and not be overcooked because they ran consistently for four months and didn't give their body a break from last year. And so having that conversation with your athletes is really important so that they actually understand why they need that off season. And then they actually feel fresh for the races because the worst thing that we can possibly do for our athletes or for ourselves is to come out of a time of down running or quote unquote off season and feel overcooked or feel unmotivated to run because the point of an off season or the point of downtime is to come back hungrier than ever. And so my goal lately has been trying to optimize that, but yeah, depending on their schedule, that could look very different for a lot of people and they might miss out on some cool adventures with their friends in April. But if their big goal is end of September, then then maybe that's worth it so that they actually have that drive come, come late summer. Yeah. Cause we've talked about that. It's easy to, to only have your off season only be that, like that week off that you take after a race or those two weeks off. And it's really easy to jump at, like to jump onto the bike, for example, being like, Oh, I'm taking time off. But now I just rode my bike 20 hours a week. And it's like, <laughs> okay, that's not really, that's not really time off. That's how you develop a metabolic injury. Right. So it's like trying to find the balance there of like, yes, you need recovery after these races. Maybe you need a little reset, but at some point you're going to need a bigger reset potentially and understanding. Yeah. If you've got a January race, like 
that means you're gonna be building all late fall into early winter. And then like, maybe you need a like a break then. And then, or like my Arizona athletes will like, they basically race from January to like May and then they don't race for the rest of the year. Cause it's just too warm. So it's like trying to find like the balance there of like using your environment, using the races that you want to go to understanding that you got to fit rest in there somewhere because it is, it's really hard to, to, you know, it's, it's, it's not hard. It's easy to take only like only give yourself a little bit of time and then jump back in and be, you know, a 12, a 12 month, a year ultra racer, as opposed to like giving your brain and your body a little bit of time off coming back into it and then finding where your off season is going to be based on your yearly goals. And it might change year to year. Like maybe I'll do trans grand Canary next year in February, but that means I need to adjust my fall or adjust my, you know, my winter or spring to accommodate that because otherwise Steven's going to murder me because I'm never going to go backcountry skiing and that's going to be a huge issue. So I think like, you know, you've got to find balance in all things and understand that, you know, it's easy to get FOMO and just race year round though. Mm-hmm. The FOMO is real. For sure. Healy had FOMO yeah. for chucking it. I had FOMO for chucking it. And I think you could also take that FOMO and put it into your races too. Like for instance, if you have these build races built into your schedule and you're supposed to use them as training tools, but instead your ego gets ahead of you and you try to run the absolute hardest that you possibly can run then that's not going to do you any advantages if you fast forward three or four months because your body's just going to become overcooked because you've just put it all out there way too soon. And that cumulative fatigue from all those super high efforts is just going to come back and bite you when you when you want to be peaking and, and, and performing your best at your A race. Yeah, I think that brings up a really good point, Keely. And I think you've personally experienced this as far as like, you know yourself, you know that you can't, you can't necessarily turn it off. That's why you, you keep your training runs or your training races a little bit shorter so that you can't, you know, like 50K training race isn't going to quite do the damage that a, a 50 mile or 100K is. And I know that you've had some had some big years in the past where you didn't feel like you raced enough and yeah, you raced quite a lot. And so how does that look as far as like structuring a season in a way that's like, I mean, there, there's no, I've, I've tried to look, there's no literature on this, right? Like there's no one way to build a season, but is there, is there too much racing? Some athletes race so much. It's insane. Like my over racers are so hard to schedule for because they can never, they can never train because they're racing all the time. I have that too. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you guys remember Nick Tiller's paper about ultra endurance training after he published that big review, I kind of went down a rabbit hole on the triathlon podcast. And they had interviewed Nick Tiller in there as well about ultra endurance training. And he had quoted a paper and I'll find it and dig it up and put it in the show notes that basically says that high endurance training. So high volume endurance training does not seem to impact negative health outcomes. However, high volume ultra endurance racing. So racing a lot throughout the season at these very, very high distance, long distance races has shown to potentially have negative influences on health. And so obviously there's not a ton of research in this space, but he was talking about it, how these gigantic efforts that are much harder than just consistent long distance training could potentially be really detrimental to our health long-term. And so it'll be interesting to kind of keep a pulse on that as the years continue to go by and ultra running continues to be more popular and we get more people to be actually able to be studied. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think that it would be great to race a ton, especially if you're racing all of them at really high efforts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as, as your race distances get longer, it's harder to do. Like I, I don't know how people do the grand slam who do four hundreds in a year or five hundreds yeah. in a year like that. I mean, they do it and they, they seemingly do it 
and not totally explode. But it's like, to me, that's at, at what expense? At what expense is that done? Like, what does that look like long-term? We ask a lot of our bodies. Um, and I think I was in denial about that for a long time. Like, I was like, TRT was great. I ran 171 miles. It was no big deal. And then like six months later, I had a stress fracture. And I was like, I don't know why it happened. You don't like, and my friend who's the orthopedic surgeon here in the city, this guy, Pierce Barry was like, I was like, I don't know what happened. And he's like, Corinne, your bone can only lay down so fast. Like, he's like, you might be totally healthy otherwise, but he's like, you can only put down new bone so quickly. And you mm-hmm. keep running really far. And it's not to say that, you know, like X, you know, one plus one equals two, but maybe one plus one equals two sometimes. And I think it's important <laughs> to recognize that like, you know, yes, you can race a lot, but at what expense and everyone's body's going to handle it differently. You know, genetics are definitely a factor there, but it seems like there are people who gravitate towards racing maybe too much. And it, I think it, it comes down to FOMO of like just wanting to be mm-hmm. at all these events. Mm-hmm. And it's like, there yeah. are more years to run, give your body more years. And your body can do it acutely. I was just listening to some podcast on, I think the Huberman lab about like stress and what it does to the body. Actually it was the radio lab, but basically like stress and stressful events, right? They can shut down growth. They can shut down digestion. They can shut down sleep, like, but your adrenaline kind of spikes up. So you don't even notice that you're like in acute pain. And cause you know, that, that happens like even during a race. Right. And so then your body can cope, like you have a great time at these races, but it's kind of the long-term effects that they might have. So yeah, I agree. I think there is at least for me, definitely too much like a thing is too much racing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when we do the kind of racing we do that have these really, really negative impacts on like hormonal fluctuation and muscle damage, like we don't know the long-term impacts of that, right? Like we just don't know what running the 170 mile TRT does to your actually like, like circulating hormones. We don't know. And then how did that impact your bone health? And so, yeah. Is this fear mongering enough for anyone? (laughs) Are you guys, as anyone getting really sad, I had to stop listening to this American life when I was uh, running because I kept crying on training runs. Um, so people are going to have to stop listening to us because their, their cortisol is spiking as they get stressed <laughs> thinking about if they're racing too much. Um, guys, I'm dropping know. down to the 50 K. Yeah. I'm, I'm yes. out. I'm, I'm, I'm out. I um, just don't, I don't want anybody to have a season like I did in 2018, where you finish like seven huge races and you feel like you haven't raced enough. I'm exhausted thinking about that. <laughs> Not worth it, guys. Yeah. So pick pick a couple key races. Pick an A race. Pick two A races. And then pick some things that are going to build up to there. But don't force it. Find things that excite you. I tell athletes that all the time. Like, you don't have to have a build race. If it doesn't excite you, we don't have to do it. So I, I kind of still use that as the gauge. Like, I want you to be excited. Even if it's scared. Scared is a good kind of excitement um, to, do, to do a build race. But, like, find things that excite you. Build a calendar pass it by someone else to see if you're going crazy or not, like develop something that makes sense. Be rational. Um, it's not easy though. I've got FOMO constantly. I'm like, I can race in November. Let's go. Um, okay. So speaking of, we know that Hilly's got no taper for, for Gorge 100 K these build well, races, a, a mini taper, but oh, yes, a mini not, enough. Okay. not enough. Okay. <laughs> and I know that, you know, we've talked about, I don't know, we haven't talked about it. The taper tantrums. I definitely at least used to get taper tantrums. Now I kind of bask in taper week. I'm like, I have so much time. I'm doing laundry. Um, I'm taking my dog to the beach twice a day. My dog loves it. Um, what are tapers do tapering do's and don'ts? What, what have you all done to mess up a taper? What have you all done? Have, what have you seen athletes do? Have they gone totally off the rails during a taper? You know, what, 
what does that look like for an A race? And what does it look like for a training race? Mm-hmm. Hit me yeah. with your ideas. Oh man, this one is like, I don't think I ever accepted my mindset during this year of my life until I read this question you put in here um, the other day. But when I first started running back in college, when I was like severely, severely under training or under fueling and just in a really bad body image mindset, I would purposefully restrict calories the week of the race, thinking that like that would make me faster. And it was just such a backwards mindset because obviously that doesn't make sense. But in my mind, it was like a way to control all of this extra energy. It was like, oh, well, you know, if you just restrict these calories, then that's what you're going to do to make up for lack of running this week. And that is a big no-no because you enter the race severely hangry, very stressed. So so hangry. And so you're not in a good mindset when you start. You are not, you do not have sufficient muscle glycogen to sustain you for very long into the race at all. And so it is just an absolute recipe for disaster. So the the time before the race, the taper is not a time to start restricting calories or limiting your calories in any ways. It is a time to dial in your nutrition. Think about all of the nutritious foods you should fuel yourself with. So you're ready for race day, perhaps add in some extra foods that week, because that's what I do now. Um, and just make sure you're getting to that line with the best head on your shoulders, which can only happen if you're, if you're fueling property properly. Oof. Yeah. I tell athletes, like I've got an athlete who's getting ready to depart from marathon to sob which is a stage race in the, in the Moroccan desert. And I was like, look, you've done the work. Like you've got a little bit of training this week, but honestly, like don't do more than you need. You've done all the work already. If you don't have time for that, that one last sauna session, let's not do it. If you are feeling stressed and you got this tiny baby workout, but it doesn't, it doesn't serve you this week. Like don't do it. Like, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Like this is a week to, to ease off the gas, to dial back the, the volume, to do less, less is more. Like I want you to sleep well. I want you to spend time with your family. I want you to crush work. I want you to use the extra time to make sure like he's got a, for MDS, you've got to let you carry all your, all your food for the week. I'm like, just make sure everything fits in your pack and everything looks good. Something that he's working with someone specially for, because it's such an intricate race in that standpoint, but it's like, it's taper week. Like I don't do big, big tapers. It's kind of like the week, bef- the like two weeks out kind of steps down. And then the week of the race, it really steps down. And it's like, mm-hmm. you've done the work. You can't do anything besides get in your way now. Like just exhale, soak so, it up. Like don't, if you don't want to run, let's not run. Let's go for a walk. You know, I think that's really important to recognize that like, there's nothing that you can do during your taper. Let's even call it the, the like the two weeks leading up to your race. That's going to make you, you can't add training. You can't cramp mm-hmm. for the exam, but you sure <laughs> as heck can get in your way. You can make yourself more tired than you need to be. Right. So it's like less is more. It's like that eight mile run. Oh, it's a four mile run. Perfect. Oh, you took another, an extra rest day. We love that for you. So I think it's really important to like, to know that you've done the work. I always tell my athletes, like the hay is in the barn. Like we're ready. Like you can kind of like, we're coasting into race day now. So mm-hmm. I like to visualize that for myself. It's easy to preach though. It's harder to like actually exhale. I think. Yeah. In practice, it's always tougher. I mean, I always know that like when it tapering comes, like I'll have the urge to, to cram. And then I have to go through that whole thing that Corinne went like to like trust that it's there. And then, um, I always feel really anxious, like the first couple of days. And then like, as it gets closer to, to the race day, I always feel like I'm really in the zone. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. No stress training the week of the race. No, no. <laughs> Does, doesn't work. No. Yeah, I've seen, I, I'm not going <laughs> to say that I've seen Hillary do that before. I haven't <sighs> done it. I've been tempted to do it. 
I've definitely, I've definitely caught uh, Hillary going for a stress run before. And I'd be like, I, hey, I saw yeah. you running. I think Stop we've it. all been there for oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's why I think having even conversations with your athletes about why the taper is important and how they can make it their goal for the day to actually taper and make them feel like it's something to work towards and not just time off of running, but Hey, this is actually more important than running. So really, really take care of yourself this week and really prioritize the taper and don't prioritize over running. Yeah. And honestly, it's a good reminder that coping skills outside of running are really important, right? Like it's once again, it's, it's, if, if running is your only form of stress relief, tapering is going to be extra hard, right? (laughs) So it's like, you gotta, you gotta have some other things that you know, you can occupy yourself with when you feel anxious or you need to, you know, shake out, shake out the brain. Like, I'm not going to say it's going to be crocheting. That's going to be satisfying, but like having something else that you can, that you can lean into, um, besides just like leaning into the fact that tapering is so good for you, um, is really important. And obviously for building, building races, you might not taper quite as much. Um, I give athletes a little bit, a little tiny taper, but it's like generally like we, we have a discussion of like, are we training through this race or are we going to do a tiny taper or are we going to do no taper? And I think it's important to know that your A race and your build race might look a little bit different as far as like what, what you're asking your body that week, particularly like knowing how much recovery you're going to need out the back end, particularly if it's like a long build race, like it's a 50 mile or hundred K rest is coming around the corner, which is important. Um, I think an area that we've definitely harped on that Keely kind of just mentioned was that another common mistake that I think all of us have witnessed, have bared witness to have made the mistake ourselves is kind of, I don't know, errors, errors when it comes to fueling. And that's both during the off season and during the regular season and it's during training sessions and it's during races. Um, and so I'm wondering if you just mentioned that you can't, don't, don't starve yourself during taper week. You must eat. Um, what does that look like though for you guys, as far as like mistakes you've either personally made or seen made when it comes to, you know, the bulk of the training season or even the off season leading into that time period? You know, nutrition is something that I think, um, I mean, it's, it's like a huge passion of mine and from the way of just encouraging, I mean, I think we we've all been there. It's like, there's this idea of, of what a female athlete should look like. And, um, but there's also like this thing called hunger when, you know, you're training super hard and it's really impossible to ignore. And there can be this, this battle. I mean, I've struggled with it before and, you know, of in tennis, and then I tried to not take that into my running, but I think it's important to, um, at least for me to be an example and to really practice what I preach. Um, and so that's really, I don't, I think my good friend, Alan Lim, I remember he told me that during training, you should never be hungry. And if you're feeling hungry, then like, okay, eat something. That's your body's cue that like, maybe you're not getting it enough or the right types of macro or, or micronutrients. And so, you know, but then, you know, in, in the off season, maybe it's okay to like, to be hungry a little bit or listen to those hunger cues, um, because maybe you're doing less and that's going to help, you know, you maintain basically, you know, um, uh, equilibrium, right. When you're not doing as much physical activity, but I think the main thing is, is really being in tune with your body and listening to those hunger cues and never letting yourself going hungry during the training blocks. You're doing so much. And, um, for me, it involves like, you know, getting a team of, of people, right. If I'm, if I'm doubting that, if I'm getting in my own head, I talk to my coach, I talk to, you know, a nutritionist to see if I'm getting in enough that I need. And if I'm not, then I'm making sure that I make those adjustments. Um, 
but it, that also that takes time, right? It's not just a, a, it's not something that just happens overnight. I think a, a good thing to mention here though, is that, you know, none of us are dietitians um, or nutritionists. We don't have a certification or, or a master's degree mm-hmm. in this. And I do think it's important that if you've got questions about nutrition and fueling, that you reach out to the wonderful resources that do exist. We, you know, there are a ton of people that are in our sport in particular in the trail and ultra community who are registered dietitians, um, who can help answer these questions. You know, if, if you're feeling like you're coming up against something that you're, you know, you're always hungry or you're not hungry and you've got questions about like, I can't make myself eat or whatever it is. Like these people are really, really good at, um, helping you kind of get down to brass tacks and figure out what you need need to be doing. I know I struggle to eat enough protein. Like I just, it's not something that I gravitate towards car, give me carbs all day long. Um, but I, I struggle to get in enough protein. And so it's something that I'm working on with a dietitian for those exact same reasons, um, to make sure that I am trying to take care of my body the best that I can, that I can listen to it, that I can enjoy food, that all, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think for me, the biggest thing I see, and this is kind of, you know, we're not talking necessarily about the building season, or the off season so much, but it's like the stomach is an adaptable organ and man, do I tell my athletes to, I was like, I want you to practice your race and nutrition. And I want you to write all your notes and training peaks so that I can see what you, what you did consume on that run. Like, let's like, let me know how much you drank. Let me know how much you ate. I think it's important to have that information. And then I go for a run and I bring like a gel and I'm like, okay, you know, didn't really hit that one out of the park. So I think it's important to like I make that mistake and I'm wondering, it sounds like you both chuckled at me. So it sounds like you've both made that mistake. And so I'm wondering how, cause it's easy to talk about it. How do you actually put it into practice so that you can be prepared for race day? Cause you can't eat a gel during training and then expect your body to consume all these calories when you're running 50 miles. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think we have to start practicing what we preach, like Hillary says, but it's obviously easier said than done. I was in Hawaii the other weekend and my my boyfriend on the trail was like, do you want some of this food? And I was like, no. And he just looked at me like, why? (laughs) And I couldn't give him a solid answer. And I've realized that fueling while running is definitely tied up into part of my ego. And part of me probably thinks that if I accept more food than maybe I deem necessary, that makes me weaker. When in actuality, extra food while we're out doing these crazy endurance events is not going to make us weaker. It's going to increase our muscle recovery. It's going to probably get us back towards neutral because we're probably not eating enough already. And it's going to get our stomachs better at digesting food when we're out there. And so I need to learn to check my ego at the door when I go on these long adventures so I can actually start practicing what I preach because yeah, to your point, I used to practice gels all the time and I would go into races and I would crush a lot of gels. And since then I've kind of stopped practicing as well as I should have. And so this year's my major goal has been to take gels on runs that even seem a little too short for gels um, and just start to, to re-enter that, that mindset of, of fueling is, is good. So you know, it's taken me actually years. Uh, cause Keely, I, w- I was doing the same thing. Like I would just go out there and then I just like, it's not, I would bring the food with me, but then sometimes I would just be like, I finish a run. I'm just like, what the heck Hillary? Like why? No wonder you felt like crap on that last climb. Like, why weren't you just eating a gel? Like you didn't know need to go faster. You just needed to eat something. And so it's actually taken me a really, um, like years. And I think actually last year, and last year was the first time that I felt like I really nailed it. Like on, I was so diligent because I, um, 
like with my foot injury, I was so diligent that every run over 90 minutes, I was making sure that I was eating something like two, like, like 91 minutes. I had a gel. Like I was, I was that diligent with it. And I would catch myself like, Oh, I don't need this. But then like, I would make sure every single run, I would count the number of calories I would need based on the hours that I was out. And I would make sure that I would make sure that I would eat them before I, I finished the run. And it's made a huge difference in my individual runs, but my recovery. And, um, uh, and it's just something that I'm, you know, I'm going to continue to do. Yeah. We were on a four hour training run the other day and, um, you know, I knew that we were only a couple miles from the end, but I like, it was kind of time to eat. Cause you know, it's not, it's not a perfect 30 minute timer, but I was like, I'm supposed to eat some more calories now, but it's kind of hot and I'm kind of tired and I'm running low on water and I don't really want to eat it. And I'm like, no, you, it's, it's, you should eat it. You know, you should, you should eat, you, sh- you need, you need the fuel. And so I think we've all been on, on a run, maybe even a race. And then that can go terribly wrong where you're like, I'm only, I'm, I've only, I only have 30 minutes left. I only have an hour left. Like I'm fine. It's like, no, like you got to practice your nutrition because mm-hmm. in race day, once again, if you, if you average hundred calories an hour during your training runs, and then in the race, you try to eat 250 calories an hour, your stomach's like, heck no. We won't go. Don't do that. Um, so I think it's really important that we we put that into practice. People are gonna be like, wow, that's a that's a new caption, new, new caption for current. But um, I think that's really, really important because when it comes to race fueling, right? Like what are the mistakes that that you like that then happen there? Right. Like what are the common mistakes you see with race day fueling that tie into the training fueling stuff? that something doesn't work. Like all of a sudden I'm getting sick and it's like, well, no wonder if you're not used to eating that much stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or you hear about something that sounds like a a quick fix to you not liking to eat. So you hear about a new drink that has more calories or more carbohydrates in it than the gels. And you're like, Ooh, that sounds great. I could drink that every hour and that'll, that'll hit what I want to hit. And you've never had it before. And so you start with it and then you absolutely hate it or your stomach revolts. So Never, ever, ever try something new on race day. Yeah. I'd say, I'd say like, never, never intentionally try yeah, something new on yeah. race day. Don't, don't be like, I'm going to go to the running shop and buy six brand new gels that I've never tried yeah. and bring it out on race day. But if your stomach goes South, right. Then, then you get to try new things on mm-hmm. race day because your fuel's not working and you're like, cool, I guess I'm running Leadville on bananas now because it's right. the only thing that I can eat. And I've <laughs> never practiced this, but it's the only thing that's working, which was definitely my 2017 Leadville. So like you can experiment <laughs> with new things, but it's only because your other nutrition has failed is how I put it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Don't set yourself up for failure, but be adaptable if failure occurs. Yeah. Right. And that's actually, that's a really cool thing that I've had some athletes do. No one likes to do looped runs, but it's a great way to practice aid stations. So I've got athletes who that's how they do their long, their long, long, like their key, we'll call them quote unquote key key long runs, like their big, some of their biggest long runs before a race, instead of going and doing a really cool six hour route, they'll do like two or three loops that will end up being that. And so it's, they do that so they can use their car as an aid station to one, get more liquids. Cause there's probably not liquids out there, but also to like drink that Coke that you're going to drink during the race day. Um, eat those potato chips that you're going to grab during the race day, you know, like kind of have to be able to practice that, right. To not have to have it happen the first time on race day, I think is so huge. And maybe it's not the most exciting training run, but man, is it good aid station practice to be able to come in and change your bottles out really quickly. And, you know, down, down half of a flat Coke and 
try to shove potato chips in your face. Like, I think that's a really good thing to, if you, if you can practice it before race day, you might as well, right. It's one less thing to go wrong potentially. That's my whole point. Yeah. I still have never tried that in training runs really. And I think I will incorporate that this year. Yeah. I've done it where <laughs> when I lived in Vancouver, I would oftentimes park at like a midpoint and I'd run like an out and back one direction and then I'd run a loop off the other side. And so it gave me one, oftentimes it was like 30 degrees and raining. So it's like, I needed a new change of clothes, um, partway through. So I didn't get totally hypothermic, but like it made it a really good aid station practice to have that in the middle. And as, as runs get hotter, because temperatures are going to, maybe spring is coming. My Midwestern folks, spring is not coming. They're like expecting more snow in the forecast. And it's been like so, so cold, but like spring is coming. And I think it's important to, to be able to have enough fuel and liquid on you for safety in a lot of places too. So the, the old car or house in the middle of your run, while it's easy to quit early, it's also really good practice to, to get back out on the course. Mm-hmm. Or having good friends that'll meet you halfway. <laughs> I need better friends. I think is what it boils down to. I just have the right. ultimate friend, Elisa, so, uh, so she can help me and like and meet me partway or have friends. Like honestly, this is what I do too: is like have a friend meet you partway into your long run. So you like loop back or you do one loop of a mountain, then you meet them and have them bring you some like extra stuff. And I've also had a really good friend, like Lizzie, do that for me. Max has done it for me too, and it was like you know. So it's, it's just having having kind of a team around you. Yeah, getting creative is huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's not really an excuse to not carry a lot of extra calories on your person right. either. Totally. Because you never know if you're going to start bonking when you're by yourself. <laughs> oh yeah. I did that. I've been doing a bunch of double Tams and prep for Madeira because why not? And, uh, Good training. I've definitely like not carried enough calories a few times. And I'm like going up the scramble at the top of Tam and it's like the hottest part of the mountain. It gets direct sun right away in the morning. And I'm like, I'm lightheaded. And it's like, cool. It's because you had half a sleeve of shot blocks this whole time. So it's like, there's no excuse. Like we're not, it's definitely not a brag. Um, like it's, it's important to practice. It's like you waste, you're wasting money. You're wasting money on a coach. You're wasting money on the race entry. You're wasting all the hours you spent training. If you show up on race day and you haven't practiced your nutrition, it's like the easiest thing you can do. And this, yeah. I'm saying this out loud so that I will continue to practice it myself <laughs> yeah yeah you, go ahead <laughs> no no i was just saying that we should start a new brag it's like how many calories did you eat during the run like mm-hmm. <laughs> i love it i ate yeah. guess how many gels i ate on my run today yeah it's let's like see. let's brag how many rest days we took during our taper and let's brag how many yeah that's the way to like change it right because it starts it, it starts somewhere and if like we we can kind of start with the positive association with that instead of it having been a negative one because it has been that way for so long. Totally. Yeah. And if you think about how much a gel costs versus how much you're paying for running shoes and packs and coaches and stuff, then that doesn't seem that expensive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you can get creative. There are times where I've carried some odd thing. I've carried a I live in San Francisco. So we've got some really cool, like weird little bakeries, like Korean bakeries and stuff. And so I've carried like mochi on uh, I used to shop at this like Chinese um, grocery store. And so I would carry like mochi, like homemade mochi on runs. And I would like take that on my pocket and I'd be like, this is the best new treat ever. I ski tour with Snickers bars. Like, yeah, you know, like gels can be expensive, but like there's all sorts of foods out there that you can practice with that might become part of your race day nutrition plan because you might find out that you really like Skittles and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's all I got. Just find out what works for you. <laughs> Yeah. And if you're in the middle of your race and you start feeling really crummy and you're questioning why you're there and you're wondering why all of a sudden it feels hard and you don't know why you like running anymore, 
try to think back to when the last time you fueled was, and it probably wasn't soon enough. And so it might be that you are a little fuel deprived. Yeah. Sabrina little once told me, um, whenever I feel bad or sad or anything during a race, I eat and I never make life decisions on an uphill, (laughs) which I love. (laughs) I love that. So let's do the society slam. And yeah. like always, it's brought to you by Aura Ring, which is one of my favorite accessories that I've been using lately. And I'll be using it for all of my recovery metrics going into taper and post-race because it gives you a really good picture of your trends about your sleep and your heart rate variability over time. And so something to really monitor when you're using these races as training builds is to make sure you're recovering. And so I will be watching that over the next couple of weeks and I will let you guys know how it comes out. That's super exciting. And, um, I'm going to continue to pull some, some upcoming research articles for us because they just, the, another research article just came out about wearables and how wearables actually them by themselves don't necessarily work great, but when you use them with like an intervention, like a, um, like a habit intervention, like mm-hmm. this tells you this, so you do X or so you do Y, like it has actually like really impactful results. So we'll mm-hmm. get to break some of that down in the upcoming weeks, which is super exciting. But Haley, you've got a slam for us, right? Yeah. Thanks for everyone putting more DMs into my inbox. Uh, <laughs> you sound um, so thrilled. No, no, I'm sorry. I just thought I said it wrong for a second. Um, anyways, uh, yeah, so I have one. It's a really cool one. Um, so maybe I'll have to like tease out several that I've that I've gotten. Um, but Holly, I don't know how to say her last name. Um, Prol. It's a P R O U L X. So she, you can find her on Instagram. Um, she's doing this cool thing. She's actually attempting the FKT on the Colorado trail this summer. Um, but she's also, and you can find more info on her, her Instagram bio, but she's doing this really cool thing, um, that she's also raising money for the American foundation for suicide prevention. Um, so throughout her, you know, her Colorado FKT attempt, um, you can kind of follow along and track it and donate money. And this is also really cool. Um, cause FKT was just sold to outside. So they've got map integration for, um, Gaia on there. So I think it's going to be a really cool, um, a really cool feature to be able to use that and they could track along, um, you know, her, her progress. Uh, so yeah, you can kind of look, um, at her background of why she's doing this. And I think it's really cool. Um, you know, especially in the, in the past couple of years where suicide rates have been rising in the U S. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it's a really cool cause and it's going to be a really cool adventure. So I love the Colorado trail. That'll be very, very cool to follow along. Um, my society slam is kind of a giant question for, for us and for the community. It's one of those things where it's like, I actually, I owe her a response still. Um, she's a current graduate student over in Europe, but is from the Bay area and actually worked at SFRC. Her name's Megan. Um, and she's, she's one of our listeners and she's also just, she's brilliant. It's really cool that she's getting a master's degree in exercise physiology, um, as we speak. And she said, as an aspiring exercise physiologist, I'm getting my master's at the moment. I'm struggling to see the best way to include females in research moving forward for the purposes of this. I'm referring to menstruating people. As you probably know, the field is still playing catch up, trying to replicate studies done only on males to see if they hold true in females or not, right? So we're doing a lot of repetitive work, kind of we're taking old studies and just adding women to the mix and seeing what happens. Um, But when researching maybe a brand new topic um, in in human physiology, so something that hasn't been studied yet, um, should we include men and women all at once or would combining them at once um, into one study take away, take the attention away from the, the female physiology that it deserves? 
you know, obviously it's hard with a well-constructed study. It needs to include monitoring the menstrual cycle. And there's no doubt that that requires extra effort, which isn't always feasible because of the time frame, funding, expertise, et cetera. But should we suck it up and do the extra work so it's not so that it's not considered extra work anymore, like to create this new norm? So it's really like, I think that's a great question. That's really like kind of the bulk of the question there of like, yeah, like it kind of does feel like, oh, like it's hard. I, I knew that trying to like put together research studies, like Keely knows this all too well. Like it's really hard. It is extra work, but the extra work I think is it like should be worth it. I'm wondering Keely, if you have any, any thoughts for Megan. And then if anyone is listening is works in the research field, works in academia and is interested in this topic, reach out to me and I'll connect you with Megan as well. Cause I think it'd be really cool to have some collaboration there. Yeah. I mean, this is a girl after my own heart because this is a question I've been mulling over for a really long time. But what I've come to realize lately is that I think for a while we'll have to study just females by themselves, where we actually look at the women who have changes in hormones and therefore have changes in physiology or or mood, and then compare those to women who maybe have fluctuations in hormones and don't have the impacts of the hormones. And then then start to dive deeper into women who maybe don't have a cycle and then have a cycle and break it into that because there's so many cohorts just within females that trying to say female versus male, that's going to be a can of worms. Because if you look at all of the papers that they've started meta-analyzing lately, all of the women show all of these crazy trends, right? But the, the average is a straight line in the middle. And that does not represent the population. I don't care what anybody says, because there are so many women who respond extremely in one direction. And there are so many women who respond extremely in the opposite direction based off of different circulating hormones. And so I think we have to start just studying females and breaking them up into smaller groups so that we actually can understand what is causing what. Yeah. And it's important too, because then you can like, then your study, all the participants, you'll hopefully recruit a large enough sample size that you can actually divide them into these cohorts. Cause that's the hard thing, right? If you Mm -hmm. say you can all exercise physiology is so silly too, because it's like you recruit 15 test subjects and it's like, Oh, well, six of them are women. And it's like, cool. And like one of them's on oral contraceptives and like one of them, you know, is, is (laughs) postmenopausal and it's like, okay, what do you do with this? So I think it's important to, to focus your whole sample size on women so that maybe you can even break them out into different cohorts and then really mm-hmm. like do the work to understand how their cycles work. Cause if you just say, Oh, it's an idealized 28 day cycle. Yeah. It's nope. like, <laughs> it's so different for every female to in yeah. like, like between different cycles. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's not an easy undertaking for all of no. our scientists out there, but we praise you for being willing to do the hard, hard work and the yeah. heavy lifting. And I kind of want to leave her. Done. I want to leave her with one more thought. And that is if we started also discovering the difference between eumenorrheic and amenorrheic women, there's just not been a ton of studies on that either, especially looking at performance metrics. And so looking at someone who doesn't have as many circulating hormones versus someone who does, like maybe there are differences there as well. And again, obviously we're all of this, you're going to have to look over at least three cycles based off of the the subject variability. So So yeah, extend extend that life of that, that research out so that you can hit hit the cycle variability there. Okay. Megan, we got all that. We don't have any of the answers for you. We got a lot of ideas though. Uh-huh. So hopefully that helps and we'll continue to brainstorm. And yeah, again, let us know if we can help. Yeah. Keep, <laughs> keep reaching out. And if, and if you work in a similar field and you'd like to be connected, I would love to, to link some people together there for a collaboration. Um, but on that note, we'll let you guys go for today. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Trail Society. Again, brought to you by Free Trail and our friends at Aura Ring. And we can't wait to welcome you all back here very soon.